Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. Sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, a story that Chris Redd first shared on the podcast in April of 2016. Here's Chris now with a story we call Let's Connect. What's up? What's up, people that are here that's listening? You don't have to say anything. This theme of the night is passion. It's my first storytelling show, so uh, bear with all the shit you about to hear. <laughs> I've had passion all my life. Um, I've always had passion following my dreams. I, I, I never wanted to be told what to do, and I um, always wanted to do what I want. And in the black community, you don't do that often. So it, was, uh, it drove me a lot. I got that from my parents. They are from the South, Mississippi. They Grew up there with little to nothing, studied hard, got degrees, moved us up to the suburbs, so we were able to have better opportunities. We didn't have a lot of talking or not a lot of dialogue growing up, and my mom would always say, we are not friends, I'm your mama. <laughs> so when I would go to like, like a white friend's house, and they were like, my mom's my best friend, I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> what does that mean? 
you know? But they showed me through actions, man, all the time. My mom had a job. She made more money than my pops. My pops had a job. Knew his wife made more money, loved her anyway, was never insecure about it, most confident man I've ever known. And it was just a powerful thing. It was, it was everything we fight for now. Feminism, all that shit was in my house. And it was a black family, so it was like the only family I knew. And it was a great opportunity to see that. They only knew going to school, getting degrees. At a tender age of 10 years old, I wanted to be a gangster rapper. <laughs> That's what I wanted to be. I knew in my heart I was a thug. That is all I knew. And I was writing raps every day for hours. And I was 10 years old, so I was writing shit that was true to me, like killing Barney. Like, I killed Barney so many times in my raps. Like, so many times. I remember my first line I was geeked about. I went to school, showed everybody, got detention for it. It was crazy. And it went like this. It was like, uh, who's on the mic next? You guess it's blood red, jumping on my mama's bed with Barney's severed head. Like, I, I was sick. I was a sick child. I was a very sick child. And I drew pictures, and Barney was like, hang ah, on. It's insane. But I loved it. And, and you know, you would guess my, my mom who worked hard and my daddy worked hard to get there. Hated the fact I rapped, but I didn't care. You know, so we had a riff for a long time growing up. I, was, I would do everything to show people how hard I was. I ran with gangs, robbed, steal. I did really shitty things to people. I was a very self-involved, self-absorbed person. But I was focused on rap every day. I would rap all the fucking time. I would annoy the shit out of my friends every conversation. If I heard a beat, I'm rapping, like, immediately. It didn't matter what it was. I would call my friends while they're at work. Yo, yo, what's up, dog? You busy? Yeah, because um, cause I'm at my job. <laughs> yeah, 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 me too. I'm at my job making this dope-ass rap, cuz let me... Let me spit it for you. I can't hear it on the phone, dog. I can't hear you on the phone. It didn't matter what he said. I was already rapping. <laughs> I was killing it. I was, had the beat going. He couldn't hear shit. It didn't matter. I didn't value my friend's time. It was all about me. That was my worldview then, man. It was all about rap. If it got in the way of rap, it's birthday parties, birthdays, weddings, everything, man. Like family time. Because I, I needed to make it in rap. If it wasn't rap, it wasn't anything, you know? Comedy was the furthest thing away from my mind. Like, I would use comedy as a manipulative tool to get things I wanted. Like, I would go, I would have jobs and I would lose jobs all the time. I was very good at losing jobs. And I would <laughs> go to this local McDonald's all the time where I used to work. And this manager had a little crush on me. So I would go up there and I would just, you know, crack jokes for hours. So they gave me free food. And I would get to know everybody, cracking jokes to the point where she didn't have to be there. I would just be getting free food all the time, employee discounts. I ain't lift them out, you know? <laughs> Like, I was good at doing it. I could work people with the comedy. It was, but it, ne it never dawned on me that it was a thing I could do. It was just like, I'll make a laugh real quick and I'm going to get this thing, you know? <laughs> I was a shitty person. Uh, I was. At 24, 14 years later, I had to break up with rap. I, and it was devastating to me because I, I didn't know life outside of this. This is all I did for hours on end. When I was supposed to go to bed, I would be up to 3 o'clock in the morning writing raps. This is all I knew. And I, and I got to a point where it's like, you, am I going to keep being broke the rest of my life? I'm negative in my account, thousands of dollars. I don't have anything but like a thousand songs that no one's listening to. <laughs> and it, it killed me. You know? And I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. So I, I enrolled in school just to try to find purpose, like fill a hole, fill this void that I had. And our and counselor was like, hey, do you want to host this variety show? Because she heard me cracking jokes and shit. And I was like, 
what does it pay? She's like, fifty dollars. I was like, well, weed doesn't pay for itself, so yeah. <laughs> I didn't know shit about hosting anything, you know. But it came down to the variety show, and uh, they paid me fifty bucks up top. So I was like, cool, this is great. I already got the fifty dollars, and I don't care what happens after this. <laughs> but I got on stage and I cracked a couple jokes about the staff, and they liked it, and it was cool. And I roasted some people because that's all I knew comedy was making fun of people, you know, because I was insecure at the time, you know, myself, so I just made fun of other people. That's just what it was. But there was one moment that I knew comedy was supposed to be the thing I do. And it was this dude named Jason who did a nunchuck routine. Now, Jason was awful at nunchucks. But I don't think he knew how bad he was. Because he came up there very confident. They were like, Jason, nunchucks. And he came out and he bowed. He had this key on and shit. He was ready. And then he, his whole routine was like, fucking awful <laughs> and I came out right after he was done and I was like give it up for Jason the only ninja that could beat your ass and his own ass at the same damn time <laughs> 300 people laughed like y'all laughed and it was the first time I ever connected with a room full of that many people before and it was electric man the feeling was incredible I was so fucking moved I was like I hey, you know you can feel this way about something like how do I get this again I didn't know how, so I just smoked weed and just forgot about it. <laughs> just to be very honest. As I was smoking weed, uh, I, I turned on the TV a couple weeks later, and um, a commercial for Second City came on. And it had all these guys that I've been watching, Tina Fey, Tim Meadows, not enough black people, though, but it was like a lot of people I knew. And I was like, man, okay, maybe I can go there because college ain't shit. I don't like college. But, like, I could take these classes. This would be fun, you know? So I, I, uh, I went and I checked out a class, but I had to get a job first. I had, I had 49 jobs, so my 50th job before I quit jobs forever was risk management insurance. Like, I talked my way in. I didn't have a degree at all. I just talked my way in. I had him laughing and shit, you know? And then he was like, well, you have to get your license. I was like, give me your book. I'll read it, learn it, do it. He gave me this thick-ass book. I was like, all this book? This <laughs> is a big book. But I did it. You know, I, I studied. I got the license. And it was the most boring fucking job I've ever had in my life. I hated it. But after like my 9 to 5, I would walk five blocks because I was broke. And I, and I didn't want to pay for the train or cabs. So I would just walk five blocks to Second City. And I would go to class. And improv was like everything rap wasn't. It was about listening to people being vulnerable, like telling the truth. I was rapping about money I didn't have. You know, I was rapping about cars I ain't drive. You know, but improv was all about like being very real. Well, truthfully, the first fucking class is about walking and being a treat, but like <laughs> the theory of improv is what moved me and I was instantly connected like shit, I need to do this. So every day I would walk and do that, and I would go to open mics, and I would try out jokes in this full suit, and I would fucking walk the city of Chicago, and I was like, I got to do this. So I had moved back in with my parents, and I was like, look, for the 15th time, and I was like, look, I know we got some beef, but please, I, I got a plan. Like, I, I want to do comedy, and my mom's all of a sudden like, oh, another fucking dream. Why don't you just do something real? 
you know, because I had been bullshitting my whole life. And I was like, no, I think this is the thing, no, I think this is the thing. My dad was like, all right, cool. You can, you can sleep on the couch and shit. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, cool. So I traveled every day for four hours from the suburbs to the city. And I would sit in, in, in uh, the second city lobby, use their free Wi-Fi, and I would get a burrito bowl, chop it up into threes, and that would be my dinner for the whole day. And I did that for years. I would just write all day until my classes were there, and I would go out and do open mics. And I did that every day, religiously, right? And I quit my job, because that job fucking sucked. And <laughs> I quit it. I saved all that money, and I used it every bit I could to just carry me over. And I was like, look, I'm going to give three years to this. I'm going to go hard. And if at three years I'm not doing it, I'm going to go get a boring-ass job and just be a regular fucking person, I guess. <laughs> Which is not a bad thing if that's what you do. But to me, I just felt, I always felt I was supposed to do something else because I'm not good at regular things. <laughs> Once I started really getting into improv, it changed my whole world view. And I stopped just hearing people and I started listening. And I started actually connecting with people that I would see every day. I can't walk past somebody every day and not speak to them. So I would see this guy named David. He would be at this Walgreens at the corner of North and Wells. North and Wells is in a place called Old Town on the north side of Chicago. And it's, I th always thought it was called Old Town because it's like nothing but old white people can afford to live here. <laughs> but that's what it was called. And it was a cross section. It was Second City. Historic Second City was right there. And a fucking Walgreens right there. And a bunch of restaurants. It was a nice, nice area. And David would be sitting there. He's this old white guy, rocker hair, long right down to his chest. And he would wear these either a Sixers headband or a fucking bandana. And he would always have a joke on his sign. And I would always give him shit. Because I'm like, how are you funny and hungry? <laughs> and he was like, aren't you an aspiring comedian? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, then you know the answer to that shit. <laughs> David was fucking funny. He was funny, man. I can't remember all the signs he had, but there was one sign that made me stop that I will never forget. It was the first day I met him. He was holding his sign up, and his sign said, this is a regular sign. Just kidding. I'm hungry. Please help. <laughs> and I cracked up. You know, and he was, and I saw, so I got to know him. He's from Texas. Uh, he went to the war for a little bit. He never specified what war he went to, but he always talked enough about it to know it was real. And uh, then he got into drugs for a little while, and he's just been trying to survive ever since. And so every time I had a little money, because he was sober, and you could always tell when people are sober like that, so uh, I would give him money as, as, as much as I could. At, when I met him, I didn't have anything but $2 on me. I was negative like $1,000 in my account. I had nothing. He would ask me for money, and I'm like, dog, I'm like $2 away from being out here with your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and he would laugh hard like, yo, them, those, uh, those classes are working. <laughs> And you keep that up, all right? But don't, don't end up out here. This is my gig. <laughs> I haven't seen him in a while, but the last time I saw him, uh, he said something that really moved me. It was in an unfortunate situation. So he got into an altercation with this couple, this very rich couple that was just like, because on Friday nights, Old Town turns into like the socialite event for white couples. It's just like everybody's out spending tons of money, and they're very fancy, a little drunk, so they're a little belligerent. And this guy kicked over his stuff. And David was mad. I was walking out this Walgreens. I was in between shows at the time because I had moved up to Second City a little bit and I started performing there and I was going in for a Red Bull. This is not a plug. This is just what I fucking drink all the time. <laughs> Killing myself early. And I walked outside and I saw David in a huff. I'm like, yo, David, what's going on? He's like, people think they can walk all over me, Chris. They think they can walk all over me. I'm like, I didn't know who he was talking about. And I saw this couple. He's like, well, and the man said, well, you should move your shit. 
Move your shit. This is a public place. It's not your fucking hotel. That's why I kicked your shit. Now kick it again. And I got very pissed and I wanted to choke him out, but I was black in a white neighborhood in Chicago. So. <laughs> and if one thing you learn in Chicago, old white people call police very quickly. <laughs> and they show up even quicker. But I did yell. I was like, yo, yo, fuck you, man. This is a human being, dude. You see everything that he has? He has nothing. Everything he has is right here. And you feel big doing this? And then David pushed me out the way because he was very strong. And I didn't know he was strong. <laughs> I didn't know he was that strong. He just pushed me. I was like, oh, you were in the war. Okay. <laughs> and David was like, no, I got this. You think you're good? You think you can just push me like this? You are six choices away from being everybody you judge. You are six choices away from being the people you judge, man. That has never left my heart ever. Like, I approach life with that in my mind all the time. And um, I never seen David after that. But, I, you know, I always hope he's doing well, and I'm going to Chicago soon, so I hope I see him. There's another guy, Willie. He was a crackhead, and uh, we called him Well Street Willie. He was always walking around. He had his jive walk. He would always be walking around. He wore this black Kango hat. You know, sometimes he would have no shirt on. That's when you knew he was hot. Because it'd be 20 degrees. He's just walking with no shirt on. Nipples hard as shit. <laughs> you know? I met him at a convenience store, man. He would always come in there, and the guys would hate him. They, they, they got, the guys owning the convenience store would just text and just be texting and shit like that. And, and he, he would come in like, hey, dude, hey, hey, give me, give me one of them phones, boy. Give me one of them phones. And the owner was like, no, you need money for this phone. You don't have money? Bye-bye. Oh, I got, okay. Well, when I'm going to get some money, and then I'm going to come back in here, and I'm going to be like, got money? Hello. <laughs> Willie was one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. Effortlessly funny, man. He's like, I need some money for juice, man. And then I gave him a couple dollars for juice. He was like, look at my brother right here. My young brother giving me some juice money. <laughs> You gon' you gonna be somebody, boy. You gonna be somebody. And then Willie bought a case of beer and some cigarettes for my money. He was a hustler, man, down to the core. I would see him all the time, would talk with him, hear stories. He was from Chicago. He 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 had been through things I'd never seen before. But I, I would never give him money when he was high. And one time he came to me when he was high. And I was mad at him, man. And he, I was like, he was like, hey, come on, I know, man, I messed up. All right, I know I'm weak, man. Don't you ever get weak, Chris? Oh, no, you strong. You strong. But just get, come on, give me some money, man. I was in the war. And I was like, Willie, what war were you in? <laughs> We've never talked about a war, Willie. The war on drugs, nigga, and I lost. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh just like y'all did for like 10 minutes. I was cracking up. Cause like that was some dope wordplay, son. <laughs> For a crackhead, that was crazy. <laughs> so I gave him a little bit of money for food, you know, and he was like, "Thank you." You know what? Every day you walk up, you talk to me, and I see you out here. You talk to people. People walk by me every day, like I'm just a tree or something on the, in the ground, and they don't pay attention. They don't connect. And that's what's gonna make you different. That's what's gonna make you different. You stay you, Chris. All right, you stay you. I'm like, I'm gonna stay me, Willie. You stay off those damn drugs. Like, I, I'm gonna I'm do it. I'm gonna do it. After the day, I'm done. 
Because I feel all my emotions. I don't like it. <laughs> and then his shirtless ass picked up a TV. I'm like, how you don't have a shirt, but you have a TV? Like, where you get that TV from, Willie? He's like, hey, Chris, business is business. That is not an answer. That's not an answer. I learned so much from those people, but what not to be. Willie had a lot of characteristics that, you know, I don't want. But he was fearless. He was funny. He said what he felt. And that is something I took from him. You can always take something from people that you know, man. And so five years later, with more Chipotle bowls than I should have ever eaten in my life, thousands of shows, I moved out to L.A., did a couple movies. The last movie I did called Fat Camp. <laughs> uh, I connected with everybody on that set, man. Every day, I would talk to everybody. It was like a family. To the point where we literally talk every day now. One of the PAs came up to me at the rap party, and he was like, man, every day, as a lead actor, you would come up, you would greet everybody, and then at the end of the day, you would say bye to everybody. And no actor does that ever. You don't understand how much that changes us and that energy, how much we appreciate that. And it was like, I had to say, man, like that's just who I've become and what I've learned from dealing with these people along the way. And I'm just you know, being myself. I feel like we're all pieces of this puzzle and nobody should be celebrated, even though the media and society celebrates one over the other. But you can't fucking make a movie without the camera guy. <laughs> Lord knows I wouldn't be on time without the PAs. Everybody means something, you know, and you got to connect. Plus, I can't see somebody every day and not know. I got to know who the fuck I'm around, son, you know, <laughs> and you got to connect. Somebody asked me, like, when will I know when it's enough? You know, when will I know when I'm done? And it reminds me of something that uh, one of my coworkers at Olive Garden said to me, this guy Julio. He'd been working there for 35 years. And that's what I said. <laughs> Whoa. And we were sitting there talking. I just had to fucking ask this man. I was like, yo, Julio, man, you should have owned like 50 Olive Gardens by now. <laughs> like, why are you still here, man? Like, why? And he looked at me and he was like, you know, you want to be a big movie star, man. You want to do a lot of big things, and that's phenomenal, and I wish that for you. But for me, happiness wasn't that hard to get. If you ever work too hard for your happiness, stop, because you probably missed that shit two decisions back. <laughs> Connect with the people that you know along the way. Thank you, guys. That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.